today on Ag News Daily. Well, Farm Credit Council represents the farm credit system in Washington, D.C. We're in charge of representing before our regulatory agencies, before Congress, before the administration. And so we're essentially the farm credit system's lobbyists here in D.C. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner, you feeling energetic today? I am. Uh, however, it is bright and early in the morning. So good morning and good afternoon, listeners. Yes. And today we are sponsored by Grasshopper Mowers. Nothing gets in the way of hashtag Moday. Tanner, I got off the hook yesterday. My folks were stopping on by as they head out to Nebraska to visit some family this weekend. And my dad mowed my lawn for me. Oh, that's precious. That is certainly a dad-daughter relationship because <laughs> that's not how it would go if my dad stopped by. Yeah, that's fair. He'd probably say, Tanner, why hasn't you why haven't you mowed your lawn yet? Your yard looks hideous. Yep. That's exactly right. He'd probably ask me why I haven't sprayed yet either. Oh well, yeah, I haven't done that. Dad didn't volunteer to do that job, but he did mow our lawn and it looks pretty nice, so I'm okay with that. Well, unfortunately, Delaney, there are a lot of our listeners that are going to be picking up sticks and parts of buildings and grain bins and uh, everything imaginable out of their yards for a couple of days with what looked like uh, a reminder of the 2020 derecho that went through our area through, what was that, South Dakota, Northwest Iowa, parts of Nebraska, most of Minnesota had experienced some pretty strong straight line winds and storms. Yes, I saw that as well. Certainly not good news here on this Friday morning. But on the flip side, Tanner, a lot of those wildfires that were in various parts of Nebraska have been reported to be extinguished. So farmers are now able to begin assessing damage on that front. And also this wind front as well, but Nebraska, especially in Kansas as well, are expected to have extremely dry forecasts here again for the next couple of weeks, not expected to get a lot of rain and expected to have above normal temperatures. So there is the potential for additional wildfires to start again, but at least that big one we reported on, I think last week or two weeks ago, has been extinguished. That's good because uh, the National Weather Service is still saying that there are elevated fire conditions for most of Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota heading into the weekend. There are winds expected to be 25 to 35 miles per hour sustained with gusts up to 60. And of course, like you said, we did get a little bit of rain, um, but they are still very, very dry. You know, that wind and the temperatures that we have here in Iowa, National Weather Service says more than likely uh, has the potential to build more severe storms this evening. So quite a bit of weather. Uh, I did catch an Instagram reel from Zach, John, uh, yeah, Zach Millennial Farmer, and uh, his farm looks like it got hit very, very right dead center of that storm last night with a lot of damage. But when I sent him a text message, he responded back saying that he and his family were good to go. And as far as they knew, a lot of their neighbors had enough warning to where they could get in the basement. So thanks to the National Weather Service uh, for having these storms predicted, tracking them very closely so that way people get to safe areas. 
And on the same note here, Tanner, speaking of weather, I want to talk a little bit about South American weather, specifically Brazil, because they've been continuing to have a lot of dryness that we've been noting during the podcast, but they're also now potentially having the risk of frost next week. And the uh, moisture obviously is really impacted and frost is not going to help that by any means. But not only are they expected to have some frost, but the long-range European models are also indicating cooler temperatures may stick around through June, uh, which is where they're noting this frost risk risk could come in southern Brazil. And crop loss is a question mark, but crop loss has been a question mark since they've entered into this growing season just due to the dry Conditions they've had as well as uh, subsoil moisture not being there. But we're having that same issue in portions of the U.S. as well, Tanner. Yeah, we we certainly have. And uh, it's around the world because now if we venture to Ukraine, we're approaching winter crop harvest season. So we've been talking about getting wheat acres planted, but we, we haven't really reported much on the crops that were are considered their winter crop are now nearing harvest. And there's a lot of uncertainty as to how it's going to be harvested and how they will transport the grain. Of course, we've reported that the rail system changes at the border uh, and that can be inefficient. Farmers simply just taking trucks to the border through Europe. Lines at the border right now because of the increased inspections are taking at least 10 hours. So once they get across the border and if they can get to port, you have to remember that it's only 23 or 25 tons per load. So uh, it takes a lot of trucks to fill a ship, which is why rail is one of the most efficient ways of getting crops there but there's also farmers that are mentioning that they may not even want to take the risk of venturing out on the highways i call them highways Mm -hmm. i don't know what the roads look like um, based upon either aggressors from russian forces or the fear of takeover so uh, interesting to see that even the crops that they had in the ground their winter crop comes ready for harvest it still may not even be able to get to the borders to be counted as an export as well. Well, Tanner, I have another piece of rail-related news here, but before we get to that, let's take a quick pause here to hear from today's sponsor, Grasshopper Mowers. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On Mow Day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there, on that Grasshopper Mower... You don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mow Day and Grasshopper Mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. Well, Tanner, you were talking about uh, some Ukrainian transportation issues. I wanted to talk about some U.S. transportation issues because when I was in D.C. last week, that obviously continued to be a point of discussion And late last week after I got home from D.C., the Surface Transportation Board issued some new rules requiring all Class 1 railroads, which are the big ones, to submit frequent status reports. And the background on this has been rail delays that have been going on for months, which have caused obviously some major headaches across especially rural America. Grain train speed, that's a little bit of a mouthful, has been down about 6%, terminal wait times up 22%, and rail car delivery bids have been up over $3,000 per average cost. And so essentially, it sounds like the STB 
held this hearing last week called the Urgent Issues in Freight Rail Service. And they basically told folks that they could come and say whatever they wanted. So a lot of agricultural organizations, including the National Grain and Feed Association and others, came and said that they were not happy and that they have seen a large uptick in cost for them. And ultimately, they're not getting paid because grain isn't moving. So this new STB ruling, again, is going to require these frequent status reports. And I don't know exactly what these reports entail, Tanner, but they are going to be doing some reporting now. Yeah, I think when that first came out a couple of weeks ago, they were headlining that uh, they were going to increase labor. They had like mm-hmm. 5,000 or 50,000 jobs that they were adding this summer, that they were removing some rail car inventory uh, to allow trains to you know, efficiently get cars in and out because of all the cars waiting at port. Um, it is quite interesting, but I think that's what it is. I think they're having to report workers. They're having to report, like you mm-hmm. said, the, measure, okay. the measurable traffic time the cost per car and the wait time at the port. So I think if I remember correctly, that's what the target was. But another ag federation, and that's the American Farm Bureau Federation, Zippy Duval, the president was speaking on the topics that Joe Biden presented that we reported on yesterday and stated that's all great and dandy, but feels like the Biden administration has completely missed one of the largest factors addressing that would help address this potential food shortage and that is immigration reform and work permits so um, he's stating very specifically that a lot of their members who would apply for h2a workers or workers uh, that are not from within the united states borders to help with harvest and growing of these crops would be able to boost capacity on their acres but right now due to a shortage and really poor border policies, um, he's saying that we have a concern there over a labor shortage. So he's he's pushing, as very verbally said, that he doesn't know if Congress has what it takes to do immigration reform, um, but there needs something done. He states, of course, we need secure borders, but we also need the ability for our farmers and ranchers to uh, acquire the labor necessary to expand our commodity exports. So uh, very vocal in this article from Zippy Duval. I don't disagree. Had just a couple of interviews with Shay Myers, um, an onion farmer out in California, and John Dinsmore, who grows lettuce in Arizona on our podcast for shows that are going to come out on Farm for Profit. And both of them said the same thing, that the lettuce industry in Arizona will have over 30, between 30 and 50,000 people traveling across the border every day to serve as labor in that portion of Arizona. Uh, And Shea said the same thing, that obviously California relies a lot on migrant workers and uh, could always use more. They always talked about being short. Absolutely. And labor must be the topic of today's podcast, Tanner, because I've got one final story here related to labor as well. As we're continuing to hear news and information coming out from last week's Meatpacker hearing, a congressional report released yesterday spotlighted how executives at these major meat packing facility companies 
lobbied the Trump administration to require employees to work during 2020, spring of 2020, when COVID first hit and when packing plants had to shut down due to sick or scared workers. They said that more than 59,000 employees at Cargill, JBS, National Beef, Smithfield, and Tyson Foods were infected by COVID-19, but only 269 of those workers died as a result. The House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, I didn't even know this was a subcommittee, apparently cited dozens of emails and documents, often correspondence between USDA and White House officials and executives at these individual meat packers and staff at trade associations, uh, that they knew the risk was posed by the coronavirus on their workers, but lobbied and collaborated with in the industry to reopen packing plants or prevent local health officials from shutting them down. So it's kind of a finger pointing game at this point. But, you know, they're also citing the, the big four are citing that this was part of the reason that we've seen prices get out of hand as they just had simply a lack of workers. Yeah, I had come across another uh, reporter on this same topic. Basically, the North American Meat Institute, like you said, they're pointing fingers back and forth. So that's the trade association for meat and poultry packers said that these fears are baseless. Investigators are uh, one-sided. This is not bipartisan. Um, They did everything that they possibly could to protect employees. You know, rigorous and comprehensive measures were in place to make sure that critical infrastructure was there. Um, Quite interesting to see that, you know, since administrations have changed, and this is a investigation into the past, I agree. It seems like that is quite a small number of deaths, all unfortunate, um, to really base and waste a lot of Mm -hmm. time and investigation on. I'm glad that they're digging into it. And uh, in my opinion, it's just time to move on. Yes, I would agree with that as well. And Tana, the markets certainly have moved on. After yesterday's YZ report, we saw near limit up moves in wheat. This morning, we're struggling a little bit in the deferred contracts to see that same type of movement, but corn and soybeans are higher in the overnight, and uh, they started moving higher last night when things opened. So certainly could be interesting to see how things play out today during the markets. Absolutely. Before we jump into our conversation today, let's pause one more time for a message from Grasshopper Mowers. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On Mo Day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there, on that grasshopper mower, you don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mo Day and grasshopper mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. Well, Tanner, with that, let's kick it over to my conversation with Todd Van Hoos from Farm Credit Council. Chatting with Todd Van Hoos, President and CEO of Farm Credit Council. Todd, there are a lot of things going on right now in the economic side, the financial side of the ag industry. So I'm excited to pick your brain about them a little bit more. It's a very volatile time. I mean, this is a time that emphasizes the ability, the incredible ability of American farmers to manage their operations. I mean, imagine the complexity they're having to deal with in terms of volatility of commodity prices, volatility of input prices, rising land values, a global economy that is very volatile as well. 
So this is going to be a, a, a difficult management year for a lot of people. Yes, you mentioned a lot of those different components that are going to be dif- difficult to manage this year, and I want to get to that here in a moment. But for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with Farm Credit Council, tell us a little bit more about the organization. Well, Farm Credit Council represents the farm credit system in Washington, D.C. We're in charge of representing before our regulatory agencies, before Congress, before the administration. And so we're essentially the farm credit systems lobbyist here in D.C. Perfect. Well, tell us about some of the issues that you're lobbying for this year. Well, we're getting ready to lobby for the farm bill. You know, we've had a lot of discussion about next year's farm bill, and we've, we've basically come to the conclusion that our primary job is to help get it across the finish line. This is going to be a very difficult bill to get passed. Uh, Congress is, is log jammed as usual on legislation. And so just getting that farm bill done next year is going to be a tough job. Difficult because just the amount of bills and, and things they're trying to pass or because we're seeing more political divide? I think political divide is in, is creating gridlock in D.C. I think nobody would disagree with that. But the idea that so few people in Washington now really understand agriculture and rural communities, we're going to have to explain the necessity of the farm bill to a whole lot of people next year. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of producers don't recognize that a large portion, you know, over 50% of the farm bill actually goes towards things that we maybe wouldn't deem as agriculturally related with food programs, WIC, SNAP, etc. So it makes your job and lobbyist's job increasingly harder, I would think, to get some of those key components passed through. But what are some of those key components of the Farm Bill next year that you guys are going to be lobbying for? Well, you know, the particulars of the Farm Bill are still very much up in the air. Uh, we don't know yet who's going to have the gavel in the committees because we've got a midterm election. We don't know yet what the budget is going to tell us we have to spend. So all of that is yet to be decided. But I think you can almost be assured that, uh, you know, livestock um, supply chain, uh, supply chain issues generally, uh, conservation or climate, all of those issues are going to be very much front and center during the Farm Bill debate. But really the the, the balance between those farm investment programs, which in the last Farm Bill was about $98 billion across five years, and the balance of those, as you just called the nutrition programs, which are the overwhelming amount of money that is actually in the Farm Bill. And so, once again, we're going to have to cobble together all those different interests and hopefully join arms to get this thing across the finish line. Well, that's in the future, but this year, as you mentioned, there are a lot of different issues impacting farm the farm economy. I want to kick things off maybe and start a little bit about land prices. And uh, I've been reading a lot lately on just the ability to somewhat curb inflation through land investments. You know, we're seeing a lot of folks outside of the ag industry step into the space to make some land purchases or land investments. From your perspective, when do you think we will start to see this land market slow down? You know, we're seeing several different types of pressure on land values. So land values around urban centers as COVID has uh, basically pushed a lot of people out of urban centers into rural America, it turns out they like it there and want to stay. And so we're seeing a good bit of that pressure, right? Everything's going up. But we're also seeing a lot of people who are trying to expand their operations to spread costs, to be more efficient. So we're seeing that pressure as well. And then finally, I guess starting maybe a couple of years ago, we started to see investors come back into the market where, you know, the stock market – from some people's perspective, might be a little overpriced. Uh, the bond returns, even though they're rising, are still low. 
So as investors looked around, a lot of them decided farmland was a pretty good investment vehicle. So we have seen some of that pressure as well. And as you look at the economy, farm economy as a whole, give us your general outlook on 2022 heading into 2023. Well, first of all, let's, let's, uh, let's produce more because we know that the Ukraine situation is, is tragic. We know that that's going to remove a lot of food from people's mouths across not only this year, but next year. Hopefully not more than that. So producers are going to be called on to start trying to produce more. I think that's important. Um, we're going to try to do everything we can to support producers as they try to do that. We're also looking at some pretty tough weather out there. I was just out west last week. I was talking to people where it hadn't rained since last fall. And so as, as the spring planting season ramps up, we've got to see some moisture out there. And so that that's a concern. The other concern we have is, how are farmers going to manage this uh, very strong commodity outlook, right? Prices are pretty good uh, with really strong uh, high prices on inputs. And so how much how much did people uh, price in before they got so high? How, how are people going to change their management practices to reduce expenditures? And what is ultimately the margin going to be out there with these good prices but these incredibly high inputs? And, you know, you mentioned – farmers needing to reduce more this year now more than ever you know we had some i don't know if this falls within your purview and if it doesn't i apologize but you know the recent legislation coming out of the biden administration the 500 million dollars to incentivize commodity production to go towards some of those countries that are dealing with food supply and food insecurity issues is that something that you have had your stamp of approval or disapproval on within the administration through lobbying efforts you know, I, I was frankly a little bit surprised by that action. I was in Oklahoma doing a speech, and a guy came running across the floor at me and said, hey, did you hear about it? I said, no, I hadn't heard that. So I wasn't expecting it. We certainly weren't involved in lobbying it. But I think that does tell you that the administration, to their credit, is trying to think of anything they can to really try to fill this hole because there's going to be a hole in food supply, according to the experts out there. And so, you know, I hope U.S. farmers can step up and fill some of it. I think I'm realistic about that, though, because how much more can we actually produce given where we are with weather, given where we are with input prices, supply chain interruptions? I think all that's going to be tough. Todd, you know, we move in cycles in agriculture. We've obviously been in an up cycle now for the last two, two and a half years. When does it end? Oh, I wish I wish I could predict that. I, I'd, I'd be a wealthy guy if I could predict what commodity values are going to do moving forward. It's true. We are in a pretty good up cycle on prices. But the last time I did this event in person, it was exactly the opposite of that. So, yeah, definitely cycles. They all come to an end. I couldn't begin to predict when this one might. But you have to look around at the economy in general. And you're going to see it may be up, it may be down, but it's going to be more volatile. And that, to me, says the management expertise of these farmers out there is going to be called on very heavily in the coming years because inevitably this situation is going to change, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's interest rates, whether it's volatility and across the globe. I think we're in for some tumultuous times. I'm glad you mentioned interest rates because that's been another one that I think farmers have been watching closely is will we get to the 80s interest level? I sure hope not, and I don't think so. I mean, we're, we don't get in the business of predicting interest rates, but I think if you look at what the Federal Reserve is doing, you look at what markets are telling us, interest rates rise. 
and I think they're rising. But still, you know, when you're talking about a, a, a 10-year Treasury rate at just under 3% and a 30-year Treasury rate at just over 3% compared to where we were in the 80s, I, you know, we're a long way from there. So I, I don't see us getting anywhere near that. At the same time, you have to realize that every, you know, few basis points in interest rates is really hitting that farmer's bottom line. And when everything else is rising, when fertilizer rising, when seeds are rising, everything's rising, you've got a questionable production outlook because of some drought issues in places. And this could be a pretty tough time. Todd, are there any other major events or things that are in your pipeline that Farm Credit is watching? Well, I tell you, we're watching beginning farmers because, you know, given the complexity of this environment right now, it's a tough time for beginning farmers. High prices on land are a barrier to enter, a great security blanket for if you're already in business, but a great barrier to entry if you're not. Across the last year, I think we made 97,000 loans to to people with 10 years or less experience in agriculture. We are seeing demand for people to get into this industry, and we're trying to do everything we can to encourage that because... You know, whether it's educational programs, whether it's incentives, whether it's technical assistance, whatever, financial skills training, we're doing everything we can to help transition that next generation in the agricultural industry. And I think maybe that's a great place to end because we do have a large number of listeners who are probably in that beginning farmer age range. What advice do you have for them as they're looking at high commodity prices, high land prices? And it's hard to just simply buy into farming if you don't have that, you know, connection in your family. If you don't have a familial connection in this, it's really hard. But we are seeing that. We are seeing new entrants, not, you know, the next generation, but literally new entrants. A lot of them are focused on very different kinds of agriculture than many of us are traditionally used to, right? And there's not a lot of corn and soybeans. That's a tough job to get into. But when you start looking at urban urban edge agriculture, when you start looking at specialty crops, high value items, new direct retail marketing chains, very innovative farmers out there today becoming beginning farmers. And so we're encouraging that and doing everything we can to understand it because it's different than what we've dealt with in the past, but also making sure that, you know, we, we've got money, it's green, right? We, that's the same money everybody else has. Our question is, what else can we bring to the table? Can we help them with financial skills? Can we help them with their management expertise? Get them the resources that they need to be successful in this very volatile market. Fantastic. Well, Todd, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Thanks. Well, Tanner, again, a big thanks there to Todd. I love talking to him. I get to maybe once a year at this Washington Watch event. And have you ever met him, Tanner? He's probably six foot two or three, hilarious in person, and just a fun guy to talk to about what's going on in the credit industry. No, I have uh, I have not spoken directly to him. I know who he is, but I could tell by the inflection in your voice that you'd much rather talk with him than me. So, well, uh, that's fair. Note taken. <laughs> That's fair. Well, I hope you've got a good weekend planned ahead of you, but uh, as Jumping Noodle, oh wait, Jumping Worm, Wet, <laughs> wet Noodle, what, whichever you planned on calling me next, I say it's time to let the listeners go. Let's let them go. Let's let them go.